0: Hello and welcome to episode 139 of the 1099 for the week of March 19th, 2018. I'm your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is the de- developer behind Centris on PC and Mac, a developer on Astroneer, a former QA director for Unity and one of the best video game professional wrestlers in the world, Samantha Kalman. (laughs) Samantha, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? It really says a lot about how bizarre this industry is when it feels like one of every four guests I talk to on here has been in the League of Heels Video Game Wrestling League. Just curious, were you a big wrestling fan beforehand and that's how you got into it? Or was it more of just, this thing is insane and I want to get involved?
1: No, I am uh, honest to God, i watched... WWF before it became WWE during the oh Attitude God. Era. I was in high school and let's see, I remember turning on the TV as a teenager and just like flipping through channels late one night and landed on, on wrestling. And it was like, Shawn Michaels was talking shit to the British Bulldog about like, there was some <laughs> thing about his wife, like Shawn Michaels had made a pass on British Bulldog's wife. And that was the beginning of this huge feud. And I just, I just, Kept watching up, I kept watching up until uh, Rikishi hit Stone Cold with the limo.
0: Oh man, this got this got real deep into wrestling. I, I
1: well, you you asked, I totally uh, asked I for it. I know, I
0: I know, I I love this stuff just because I. I'm not a wrestling fan, but I'm more just curious, like from a distance curious. I'll, I'll try to watch wrestling every once in a while just to yeah. see like, what's all the fuss about? Do you, do you have any idea why there is this connection between people who work in video games and professional wrestling? Have you noticed a pattern?
1: Well, there are a lot of men that work in the game industry. And I think <laughs> wrestling is very appealing to mm-hmm. male demographic um, it's, you know, it's, it's theater for boys, right? Because yeah. it's so, it's a soap opera for boys, right? Yeah. You have, uh, you have these larger than life personalities with larger than life and often incredibly silly conflicts and issues with each other. Like instead of like, uh, you know, working out their differences they get in this squared circle and fight it out so it's like <laughs> it's drama and it's athleticism and i think that there's a certain theatrical nature to it that yeah. a lot of video games lend themselves to and like i think that you know we love cinematics and we love stories and games and um i think that there's just a a, a strong natural sort of venn diagram overlap of those two worlds anyway and I don't want to say that I don't want to say that only males like wrestling. That is not what I was meaning to imply earlier. Well,
0: it seems like right now too, uh, the female wrestling circuit. And again, this is coming from someone with no actual wrestling understanding, but it seems like people are even more amped for the female side of wrestling lately. I thought were they didn't the the female group like headline the most recent? Was it WrestleMania, Royal Rumble? Is that the one?
1: You know, I gotta be honest. I I don't know. I haven't been watching it since about two thousand one. So uh, like a good time I, to get out. I've I've fallen. I fell out of wrestling, watching wrestling, and keeping up with it a long time ago. But uh, it is nice to see it popping up here and there in social media and on Twitter. Like people in the game industry, you know, sort of like keep me somewhat up to date <laughs> on what's happening. Like when exciting yeah. things are happening. Like like I guess there's a Roman Reigns thing happening now that's finally working. Um, <laughs> and uh, but the, but the women like. Like, it's awesome to hear that women are getting more um, you know top billing and getting more more events and more featuring uh, I actually went to I, I, I went with um uh, my family my 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 younger brother and my mother we went to um, universal Studios not too long ago and uh, as soon as we walked into Universal Studios there was like a big sign about impact wrestling a live taping um so, I was like, let's go. And they were like, <laughs> what? Why? And I was like, I've never been to a live wrestling show. Come on, it'll be dumb. Let's go. And so we totally sat and watched this like three hour taping of Impact Wrestling. Um, I don't know if that episode is aired yet, but it was good. Like there was like a hardcore match <laughs> and like uh, one of the guys, you know, it was like classic McFoley moves. This guy was like going through tables and and falling on a... a, a, a a turned over bag full of like thumbtacks and like, uh, it was really intense to see that stuff in person. And there was, um, there was a wrestler, a woman wrestler who, um, debuted at the taping and someone in the audience, um, Recognized her from a different league, and was like, "Oh shit, like she's here!" <laughs> and I was like, "I don't know who this is. Like, this is an awesome character, and she looks super badass." In case that hasn't aired, I don't want to say anything, but um, it was it was like it was cool to see it was cool to see it all. Um, and what's what's there's this woman's name Rosemary what a cool ass character like she is badass and and like um, i'm like how i never heard of rosemary until now i want to be rosemary so that's my new life goal is to be rosemary
0: it seems like wrestling is one of those things that in person is almost sports not the right word but a completely different spectacle than what it is on tv in a lot of cases with let's say football i've gone to enough football games where i'm like i'd rather just stay home and watch it but i would assume the impact of the the jumps and the hits and everything like that. And just the, the crowd adds so much to it. Because yeah. I've never seen crowds get more into anything than crowds at wrestling events.
1: Totally. There's a, there's a feeling in person of like the humanity and the vulnerability of these people that are yeah. that are doing these stunts. So, like when someone stands on top of the turnbuckle on TV, it's like, oh, okay, well they're they're climbing up the turnbuckle to do a jump, but when they but when they you know stand up in in person on the turnbuckle, it's like they're like like they it does not look easy to balance, <laughs> and like yeah. the jump that they're gonna do, like you know this this looks I don't know, there's a weight to it. Mm. that is in person that isn't, that the the television, that the screen sort of erases. And I don't really know what what it is. It was the first time I noticed it sort of at that event, um... But it was fun. We sat through the whole thing. So I don't know. I like how we start an episode of a video games podcast with like <laughs> 10 minutes of wrestling talk.
0: <laughs> See, I feel like that's only natural for this industry with how much people in games, media and beyond talk about wrestling. So it's the only yeah. real way to start this. We could talk about games now. Uh, like I said earlier, uh, you created and released really Centrist. But before that, yes. you were still in the industry involved with Unity. Uh, back when you yeah. first started developing Centris versus when it actually released, were there any misconceptions about game development that you had to face head on throughout the process? Again, because you had this experience helping people make games, you had an idea of what you're getting into, but how different was that idea versus the reality?
1: So I was at unity for in total about five years, including contracting and, um, and full-time work in your on site in Europe. Um, And I knew the engine very well and the tool set very well. I had never used it to take a game from scratch to commercial release. Mm. And so there was a lot there that I don't think I could have prepared for without just doing it once. Um, You asked about misconceptions. Um, I think that the biggest the biggest confrontation I had with my own misconceptions was the um, the degree of failure I would have to face. Yeah. Like I had this this notion of because this was my first game and I was an unknown developer and I was trying to make a big splash and and do something new in this genre that I think a lot of people love. Um, it had to be perfect, and that meant you know hitting a home run. I meant hitting a grand slam with like my first, uh, real engineering, like game engineering and game design effort. Yeah. Um, what, what, what the reality was that nothing was ever perfect. And even as I was working on features, so I would, I would, I would, I made an alpha and took the alpha to demo to trade shows at, Seattle Indies Expo and got some feedback and people liked it and all I could see that whole time was well it's missing this because I know it's missing it because um, it's on my list of things to do and, and that's going to make it perfect and then six months later I would have that feature implemented and the game would be dramatically different than that first version that you know people liked um, and it felt, still felt imperfect it felt like it wasn't there yet it's like well is not perfect yet because it's missing this thing. And I kind of got trapped in a, in a vicious cycle of not good enough itis. Um, and I think that that was a, 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 a failure of experience or lack thereof and a failure of process where, you know, because I had this huge chip on my shoulder about emerging, um, I really wanted um, I was really unable rather to change my process to you know get the game in my head um, into its own compartment and um, and look at the game in front of me you know look at the game that I'd built and the game that people were playing and listen to the things that people were saying with you know very close attention to detail about what they liked and what they didn't you know, Rather than sort of justifying every criticism with like, oh, well, that's because this feature that I have in my mind is not there yet, and that'll yeah. fix it. It didn't. Spoiler, it didn't. Um, <laughs> you know, but, but like, change my process to focus on improving the game that's there and making that better. Um And I think that that's like one of the most difficult parts of creative work is like you have this vision and you have um, a lot of unknowns and you have a lot of um, motivation. Um, And, you know, you have dreams, right? And so you're trying to make a thing. You're trying to make a thing. Whatever that thing is, it's important to you. It was vastly important to me. And you, you put putting in the attention to detail to the to the details that seem important for the work. Um, and I think that, that, um, I'm, I'm sort of monologuing here, but to wrap, to wrap up briefly, um, I think that this is one of the differences between arts and products, Yeah. you know, like I treated Centris like a painting and, um, I'm very, very happy that I did that. It sold like a piece of paint, like a piece of artwork, right? Like it, it, it didn't have this massive commercial success of so many indie game projects that you hear about. So like my game sold, you know, 5% as well as many of my friends, you know, successful indie friends games did. And I was sort of working under this assumption that like, Oh, well centers will do that too. Um, but it, it didn't, it wasn't as much, it was too much art and not enough product. You know, it, it, it didn't, um, it, it didn't follow these um, conventions of, of what we think about as video games. And instead it was like a, a, an, ex, a, you know, an experience, like a game-filled experience um, that put people through chal- challenging emotions. Yeah. Um, and I think that that negatively impacted its sales, but positively impacted me and my, my creative endeavors.
0: I have a billion questions based off of that. You mentioned before kind of having the chip on your shoulder and maybe pushing for this thing to be maybe not perfect, but you want it to be as close to perfect as it could. So you can make that splash. So when it comes out, it's right. Eventually, centrist did get into early access. Was it mm-hmm. a struggle for you? to put something out into the world that wasn't complete in your mind. And like you mentioned, you saw these different things that, okay, that's not done or this should be better in this way, or this feature needs to eventually develop. You're kind of setting something out here saying, here's my work in progress. And again, in terms of art, here's this painting that's still missing these different features Yeah, play around with it. And then you get that feedback. Cause that feedback is invaluable, especially if you're a one person development team where, You don't get that second pair of eyes that gets to look and say, try this, try that. This is a personal project. But was that a struggle for you initially to just get it out there knowing it wasn't done?
1: You know, it wasn't really. It was much more of a struggle to get started Mm. and to get into a routine of developing it, you know, with regularity, like on a daily basis. Once I was confronted with the need to put on early access, Um, I mean, the decision to put it on early access was purely financial. Um, I was, you know, in need of more development funds. And I think that's true for a lot of games where, you know, you ship when you're, when you're out of money or when you're out of budget. And, um, and that, so that was the right time for me. Um, that was the right time for Centris. I mean, it was, I had shown it at like three or four shows at that point, so, I was fairly confident in the direction it was going. Um, I, you know, I didn't have any stru- I mean, I was nervous, of course. I was incredibly nervous about how it was going to be received, but not so nervous that it would um, have stopped me um, because really, like, that's the purpose of creating something is to share it with people. So, um, you know, I, I, I was optimistic that the people that were interested in the game would see through the vast shortcomings of the early access build. The the biggest problem with that first early access build was the, you know, like the the main menu was literally a debug menu. And to even get into the gameplay, you know I thought it was easy because, like, I knew exactly which buttons to, to push and which checkboxes to check for different, like, configurations of the game. But I didn't onboard my players to that at all. And um, I sort of trusted them to, like, tinker and figure it out. Um, but I guess Factorio players are not really interested in musical puzzles. <laughs>
0: When did you feel comfortable saying this thing is 1.0, this thing is done, it's ready to go? Because i again I would assume leading up to this, you could spend maybe two, three years just tinkering and tinkering and yeah. tinkering. Like, oh, we're getting closer, 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 closer. Yeah. But when did you finally say, like, okay, I, I need to just I need to just do this?
1: um so it released in August of twenty fifteen. And um, Since about January, I had been pretty confident that it was time to wrap it up. Um, So that what that means is the nature of the experiments were getting smaller and smaller. The scale Mm -hmm. of them were getting smaller Uh, because I kept experimenting, you know, pretty late and making making changes later into the process later into the schedule than I should have. You know, finishing a game is its own skill. Yeah, It, it, it is its own gauntlet in a lot of ways um because when you're finishing you are making compromise after compromise where you're confronted with your own past decisions and the implications therein and you know you're i felt a lot of regret about like having made decision a instead of decision b and how that was going to affect the game and but but you you can't you know you don't really have a choice um one of the one of the I had a lot of mentors like I was really really lucky to have um, this the support and guidance of a lot of people mm-hmm. um, and one of them was Chet Fallisak who um, uh, was at valve at the time and um, really working hard on getting VR out there and um, I saw him at uh, at e3 you know like two months before um, before Centris was 1.0 and released. And um, I was talking to him and he was like, aren't you shipping? I was like, yeah, I'm trying. I was like, <laughs> I'm trying to ship this thing. And I've been like looking at it. T- been, like circles are burned into my retinas. So like I've been doing some VR experiments. He was like, you got to finish. You just got to like hate yourself. <laughs> you just got to like <laughs> hate yourself and put it out there. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but but I think that that is actually really true. It's like you, you have to just except that it will never be perfect. And, um, you know, that, that, like, I know I could have done better, right? Like, I know I could have done better with Centris if this or if that. But I didn't have this or that. So I had to do it. And that meant putting putting it out in the state it was in rather than, you know, that perfect version in my mind that will maybe never exist.
0: Yeah. It, well, it's just so weird how when you look at, let's say, a AAA project, you have certain... Deadlines and certain publisher goals that you're not really controlling when this thing releases. There's some right. input there. But when you're working on your own thing, like you mentioned before, the only thing that's really controlling you is your budget. At that point, it's just right. when the money runs out, that's when you do it. And I know you were learning on the job with a lot of this stuff. But yeah, was there a thought in terms of how am I going to market this game when it goes on early access versus when it goes 1.0? Because I think it was last year, Dead Cells was one of my favorite games from last year, but I played mm-hmm. it early into the early access where there definitely weren't a lot of, there were a lot of features missing, obviously. There was a lot of content missing, but I just put like 20 hours into it, loved what was there. And since then, they've added a bunch, but I had my time with it and was kind of like, mm-hmm. ah, that was the game I played. I don't really have that fire to go back. Was mm-hmm. there a thought of... How can I bring these people back after they see the incomplete version to experience the "quote unquote" complete version?
1: Not nearly enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that this this your experience with Dead Cells in, you know, taking the time with it in the state it was in, um, like that's a real example of how we engage with games. Like that is a completely. Um, Legitimate way to to experience a product, right, or to experience a uh, entertainment. Yeah. Um, it sort of it speaks part of it speaks to the nature of the high turnover of games in the industry. Um, you know we're always sort of getting bored and moving on to the next thing, and getting bored and moving on to the next yeah, thing. It's a
0: week to week thing sometimes. Where Monster Hunter is the biggest thing in the oh, world, man. and two weeks later everyone's like, I don't. What are you even talking about? I'm playing this. Yeah.
1: Thing. It it boggles my mind. I. Honestly, can't keep up with it. Um, But this aspect of like, how do you manage that? Like, how do you market for that? I honestly don't know. Um,
0: It seems impossible. Like you would, could you imagine, sorry to interrupt you. Could you imagine developing a shooter in your year three of a big shooter development? And right now, Battle Royale is taking over the world. You might release that and no one cares because everyone just wants a new PUBG or a new Fortnite. Like it's, how do you anticipate that
1: this is why we call video games a hit driven industry yeah because you're either a hit or you're not and um you know, no one could have predicted that battle royale games would become the movement that they've become. Yeah, Roseanne um,
0: tweeting about it.
1: Like, did she? Everywhere. That's She, she cool. said
0: she's won like 20 games or something like that. It's, oh
1: man, I still haven't had my first chicken dinner. I need my chicken dinner.
0: It's uh, neither. I, I had it in PUBG.
1: I've not had it in Fortnite. I have okay. not been able to master that one. That's an entirely different beast. <laughs> <laughs> I think that this marketing strategy of like, how do you continually engage with people or re-engage your customers is really tricky problem like it's it's probably a problem that deserves full-time job attention of one if not two people you know dedicated to it Um, you know I think and I think that that sort of uh, parlays into um, like a production conversation about like well we who play games and don't work in the industry have our own sort of like um, habits and expectations about games but there is so much that goes on to make a game like so much that I just did not know about at all. When, when I embarked on, on this um, spinning circle adventure. Um, and I'm still learning about, about what it takes, um, to, to release a successful or depending on how you, on how you, um, define success and how you, um, on how you release a wide-reaching, how you make a hit.
0: Finding that balance seems, like you said, it's it's almost impossible. Because there is, of course, there's hard work involved, and of course there's talent involved. But like so many things in life, there's this massive luck aspect of it where you got to just sometimes be in the right place at the right time. And uh, the video game industry is not always the most... Agile industry, it's hard to just shift mid-development and be like, okay, well, this thing is big now. Like going back to a similar example, if someone was year four into developing an MMO, right when MMOs kind of went away, yeah. what do you do with that? I mean, I guess in the case of like Blizzard, you turn Titan into Overwatch, which that's an incredible feat to do. And it yeah. I think maybe one of the weirder examples when you do look at Fortnite is that game was not originally a battle royale game. It kind of just, okay, this yeah. is big. Can we? Adjust what we have and make this work. And because they were the first ones to do that successfully on a console, that thing has been downloaded like I don't know, a hundred million times. Like it's one of the most popular. It's like Minecraft level of phenomenon right now. And a lot of it. I didn't realize it
1: was number one on Twitch.
0: Oh my! It's I. I thought it was big, and I knew it was going to be pretty big as long as it wasn't like a terrible game because people were really hungry for something like that in a console, but. It's like, I bet my mom probably knows where it is right now. My little brother plays it every single night. There's people who are constantly playing it to an extent where I'm like, this is the first time I've ever felt genuinely old in these moments when this is happening, where I'm like, what is happening with the kids these days playing Fortnite so much? (laughs) Um, It's one of those things that, yeah, it it feels lucky and it just reminded me maybe the most bright and shining example of uh, this industry is just difficult to find success in. I mean, especially for you with... There are games coming out on Steam every day. You could release Centrist 2 tomorrow... And then by 4 p.m., 18 different train simulator updates or whatever will push it from the top of the new releases to the bottoms. How do you compete? And that's an impossible question to ask. But when you released your game, how did, did what did you try to do to make it stand out among this giant avalanche of releases? Or is that even possible?
1: Well, um, I would encourage you to ask this question of someone who had a better performing game. <laughs> um, what I did was I just try to show Centris for what it is. Like that, that's, that's one of the things that I think is special about the game is it is sort of very honest in, in what it is. Um, um, you know, I didn't really try to hype it. Um, I didn't try to, I, I never misrepresented it. Um, I never made assets specifically, I never made assets for marketing it that weren't in the game. Um, Even I I guess there's like some examples of like levels that change colors that got removed from, from a build throughout development for technical reasons and memory management. I was trying to make the thing (laughs) run on Ouya anyway. (laughs) uh, So um, let's see. Um, I just tried to show it for what it is and trust that um, trust that people that felt moved by what they were seeing would take an interest. Um, and I think that that happened. It's just that that audience is smaller than I thought it would be. Um, the people that like Centris love Centris. And I, in this era of, um, you know, game developers being harassed and, and having death threats mm-hmm. tweeted at them and emailed to them, like in, in this Time, I still like once a month get a really incredibly nice email from someone that's just like, you know, I love this game. I followed the story, or I discovered it later, and you know, thank you for doing it. So like, I don't, I don't know, like, why that is, um, but I, I guess it's evidence of, you know, showing the game for what it is and explaining why I was doing it, what I was trying to achieve. That sort of like. Um, below the surface. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, some, something worked, something there worked. And, and when we talked about like, how do you define success? I think that that's been a lesson for me is that, you know, for a lot of the game, I was trying to define success as, you know, financial success. Um, but it, it, it didn't, it didn't achieve those, those goals for me but it yes. did um it did accomplish a wholly different kind of success um this one of sort of belovedness by the people who by the by the the community of players and you know i have emerged in the industry i'm no longer an unknown um and i'm 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 doing i'm you know i'm fucking ex champion of league of heels right (laughs) like 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 i have fans and i have followers and i have um colleagues like i have rapport with people um and that that matters um and so you know a lot of it is uh people talk about like the creative um post postpartum depression and a lot of that period for me has just been sort of coming to terms with, like, well, what are all the amazing things that did happen, you know, because of this? And how can I, how, how grateful, how, how grateful can I be for all of that?
0: I, I think you came out on top in the end with that one. Uh, Thanks. How has it been working with a, a team of people versus doing something solo? And I, I with, Astroneer, um, I don't really know the full size of the team but with Centris you kind of think of this, when I think of Centris I think of you directly and you being responsible for with again like Astroneer there's more people involved. How's that kind of been different for you?
1: It's been very different. I started working at System Era because I wanted this experience of collaborating with a team. Um, I know what it is like to be in charge of and doing everything and having all the responsibilities and also all of the, you know, all of the, like I get to reap in all the rewards myself. Right. But like on a team where it's us, you know, they say you want to go fast, go alone, go far, go together. And I wanted that experience. Um, Astroneer is not my vision. It is someone else. It's the vision of someone else entirely. And um, what is nice about the team is and about the founders is, you know, those original vision holders is everyone they've invited to, to work for them. Um, they also invite them to make Astroneer theirs as much as possible. So there is no, um, there, there is no like suit at the top yeah. saying it must do this. It must do that. Um, we get a more open process to explore and collaborate and critique each other. Um, I, I I like I like that and I like that um, I like that I don't have to write all the code. <laughs> <laughs> it's really nice to be on a team of like uh, that has like six six programmers. See, I think it's like more like eight programmers now oh, actually. Man. Okay, so a lot of programmers that are writing a lot of good code and code that's better than the code I write. And I'm learning from them. And this is my first time writing networking code for a game. And that's incredibly challenging in its own right. Um, It's also creatively been really interesting to, you know, bring my ideas of like, what could Astroneer be? And like debate, debate those, debate those assumptions with people. Because what I found is that usually my inclinations toward what the game wants to become are at, um, there's some friction between my opinions and other people's opinions. And it kind of goes, and it's mostly in a feedback territory and like a crit territory, but there's something different to it. There's something where, you know, I didn't play Astroneer before I started the company. I knew about it. Um, and I researched it plenty, but I didn't play it. Um, and I think that the people on the team who fell in love with it when it was released understand it fundamentally differently than I do. Yeah. So a lot of it has been learning me learning to trust the opinions and the feedback from my peers. Um, And that's been really hard because and maybe for me more so than other people, because I did come from this very like emotionally charged period of creative decision-making and creative control and letting go of that. And, you know, taking a step back to say I had this idea that I loved and I tried to sell it to my teammates and I tried to prototype it and they're telling me that they don't like it. And I I don't understand I mean you know I do I do understand why um I don't understand why there is um a difference like such a such, like it's a pattern right yeah. so like it's it's a pattern for me that that like if um like the way people react to things to various ideas like I'm learning to get a read on like is this a good idea for the game or not uh, and maybe that's a better way of saying it is like understanding that what's a good idea for the game is not necessarily my favorite idea yeah. because even if it's my, you know, that just means that it's my favorite idea. It doesn't mean that the people who love Astroneer is going to be their favorite idea. So working with something that, um, that, that requires me to, to to approach the thinking of like, what's a good interaction for this game? What's a good progression, a good upgrade, a good, a good, you know, tool or module for this game requires like even more work from me to, um, to be scrutinizing about like, is this right for the game or is this just my favorite dumb idea? (laughs) Usually it's my favorite dumb idea. So
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, I bet having that sort of outsider's opinion person who hasn't played the game coming in, having those thoughts thrown into the pile, it's helpful because you definitely want to consider, okay, what does the community want? We should listen to them. But I also think there's a really big value to what don't they know they want yet that we can provide? And I am I think that's an aspect you got to be yeah. like, okay, we can't always, you want to listen to your community and there's people at Ubisoft, for example, I've had Eric Pope on here who, like that's his job, is listening to the, yeah. the For Honor community and talking to those people. But I do think very often the community might not know what's best for the project or they might not know that there's this thing out there that the developers are going to come up with that might not initially sound perfect, but they'll love. So there has to be part of you that's like, we need to surprise them consistently instead of just giving them what they think they want.
1: I always want to surprise and delight people. And it is a balance of, you know, what are, what, what, what are they asking for and what will make them happy? Um, the, the tricky part with a community, you know, the size of Astroneer or even more the size of For Honor, like God bless Eric Pope, that job cannot be easy. What he does. Um, we released, um, a base the base building update for Astroneer not too long ago, and then included with it a couple of new fundamental interactions to the game. Um, it, we basically introduced a long press to um, engage with certain activities, to look at your control panel on a research platform, or to look at your catalog to buy new tech, or to like trigger dynamite. Um, you now um, you know you hold a button, you see like a a radial meter fill up. Um, and this was divisive because for two reasons one we didn't tutorialize it extremely well so there's still some work there to introduce this new concept to players that are familiar with the game they with the way the game used to work um and um there was also contention um or there was there was there was feedback contradictory feedback there were people saying um this game is too controller centric and I would like it to be more mouse and keyboard centric, and okay. these gestures or these 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 button presses um, are evidence to me that that you're paying too much attention to controller, um, and you know, you know, and inventing from there. But then, like, in the and in, you know, this is, you know, there's another thread that is, um, hey, this is too keyboard and mouse. Like, I still need it to be easier on the controller, and it's like, well. These two people that are playing the same game are are reporting literally opposite experiences. Yeah, how With, do you
0: satisfy that group?
1: How do you how how do you Josiah? <laughs> <laughs> Please Maybe I just tell the me. Most, yeah,
0: well, I wish I knew. <laughs>
1: what do your what are your odd what do your podcast listeners want like? What makes them happy?
0: Yeah, it's in you you're right where you get opposite. All the time, very much. It'll be mm-hmm. like, "Hey, I'd prefer if you did fewer interviews and more like roundtable discussions." Than when I do one of those, They're like, "I think the interviews are better." Like, I don't know what you want, people. Like, that's when you do go back to the maybe instead of giving them exactly what they think you want, you got to do the thing that you feel is best for your game yeah. or your podcast or your show because the they started listening or playing or watching whatever you're doing because of the person creating it you got to trust that person who's creating it to keep doing something interesting. Yeah. But like that's hard to do that when like you said there are people on forums or let's say on Twitter yelling opposite things at you. Yeah. And like I I don't want these people to be angry. I want them to like this, but I don't know how to actually satisfy that need um just curious I don't know if I asked you what exactly what role do you exactly play uh on the the Astroneer development team what is it mostly a whole bunch of contractors are are you full-time are you you coding like what what's what are you actually doing on a day-to-day basis with the game
1: yeah I'm full-time I'm a technical designer is my official job title I guess, um, yeah, I'm a technical designer, but we don't have job titles on our business cards. We're okay. um, we're too fancy for that. Um, <laughs> I um, I have a mix. Lately, I've been doing a lot more coding. Um, Astroneer is an Unreal project, and it is a C++, which this is the most I've worked with C++ in my career. Um, so I'm a little, uh, you know, I'm not as, as proficient with C++, but I've been learning more and writing more yeah. code. I, you know, I'll lead some conversations about feature ideas. Um, I will drive features. So even though I didn't implement 100% of the interactions, I sort of owned and drove and communicated the design and the details of, you know, what was intended for, for this. And that, 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 in, that involved, you know, conversations with uh, one of the programmers. Um, Brendan, who uh, is actually one of the co-founders, um, wrote a lot of the code for the interaction system and, um, you know, it's just conversations, you know, it's literally conversations. It's, um, yeah. and, and a little bit of, a little bit of, um, um, spec writing. Um, I wrote a 10 page design document for the research system that we shipped in the fall, in the summer, in mm. the fall. And, um, that's the longest spec that anyone's written for the game. Um, and I haven't written any, I've written specs since then, but not any that long. So because we are a smaller team, we're 16, I believe we're either 16 or 17 now. Um, we brought on, uh, Annie as a, as a content designer, really, she's our newest hire. I'm really happy to be working with her. And, um, um so it's a lot of you know like classic game design problem is you, you you the job of a designer is to communicate ideas. And so how do you do that? Well, you can write a document, but if the idea changes, you have to update the document. And if you have you know 30 documents or even a dozen documents and you have three ideas that change that touch on all those details and going through all this are you going to go through all those documents or are you going to just like make the change especially if you are able to fire up visual studio and just make the change. So we're finding a balance there because I, I actually hate writing documents. <laughs> so, um, now, um, so, so lately I'm working more in code and, um, you know, for, for, I'm working, I'm working in code now more than I have been for the last like year on, on average. Um, but it is very much, um, conversations planning. Um, I've, I've spent a lot of time trying to learn about creative processes. And, um, so I'm trying to introduce those processes to some of my teammates. Um, Aaron Biddlecom, who's another technical designer on, on the game, has a wholly different approach. He, he's basically an, a computer. He's basically a software engineer. He, um, is a much better programmer than I am and he prefers to explore ideas. Um, you know, in code and, um, and with builds. And so we've had some, some conversations about like, okay, well, should our process be a hundred percent code driven? What does conceptualization of an idea or of a feature look like for system era and for Astroneer? And I don't think we've landed like, and it's still a little bit fluid. So like we're, we're sort of taking it on a case by case basis about what makes the most sense. Um, the base building update that we released is a result of, um, of Aaron's really good, really hard work, um, with a sort of constant live prototyping process. And, um, it takes longer to do it that way. Um, but I think that we, we ended up with a pretty great feature, um, that, that the game is needed for a while and is making players happy. Um, so my, um... I guess my point is that there are lots of different ways to do it. And the way that I work as a designer with my coworkers is um, probably pretty different than a lot of game studios. But um, I I at least think about how we do the work we do in addition to doing the work. Um, And because that's important to me, I want to get better at what I do, you know? No. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Is the game still in game preview slash early access right now?
1: Yes, it is.
0: Is there any sort of set idea of when you want it to be, quote unquote, done? Or is it one of those, we'll know it when we see it. We're not worried about that right now.
1: Um, We have discussions internally. We also have a roadmap that's publicly visible. Um, um, Beyond that, I don't really know what to say about it. Um, It will not be in game preview early access forever. Like We do plan on releasing a 1.0 version (laughs) that is out of early access for sure.
0: Okay. Um, you mentioned earlier the the collaborative nature and sometimes having these uh, some friction, but in a positive way where you, people have different ideas and sometimes the ideas work. Sometimes they disagree mm-hmm. that these are going to work in the game. Was that a difficult transition for you early where because on Centris, whatever you thought was best, you could just implement? Of course, it would take time and effort to implement yeah. that but the idea is you can set in motion where you're like I think this is good I can do it in this case you might have these moments where you're like I think this is good and someone says I don't so you are getting edited to a certain extent I've had that when I was writing reviews for GameSpot and you over time you get the thick skin where you can take the harsh edit or someone saying you need to rework this or rework mm-hmm. that but was that a struggle for you early on going from the aspect of I can do what I want to I can do what the team wants.
1: Yes. It was a very big struggle. It's something I still struggle with. Um, but that's also, I mean, I think creative tension is good. Yeah. Because it pushes all of us to do better work. Um, I, I guess it was different for centrist because um, centrist was something I had been thinking about for 10 years um in various shapes and forms before and so watching it come together i was very emotionally attached to centris yeah and i like astroneer a lot i think it's a really charming game with a lot of heart and i'm really glad to be working on it i don't have the same emotional attachment to it that i did with centris probably because you know it's not my idea yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> and, and so i think uh you know like any well Crit, like giving and receiving critical feedback is a skill in and of itself. Um, And I think that there have been just as many times that um, I've been showing someone, you know, like, here's how this is coming along. Like, we tried this out. What do you think? And just gotten destroyed. Um, That's happened as much as the reverse, where someone's shown me something and I'm like, well you know, this doesn't work for this reason. Yeah. And um, I think that I'm, you know, I try to be diplomatic and not like destroy people, but sometimes I can be a harsh <laughs> critic. Yeah. Um, and 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 I think a lot of it, I think a lot of it, what it boils down to is we're trying, we're figuring out how to work together And and who owns what and what, what is collaboration? You know, what, 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 what is, when we say we collaborate, like, how do we collaborate and what does that actually mean? Um, you know, without getting too much into the, the details of, um, of that stuff. Um, not, not all of creative work. I mean, rarely creative work is, uh, you know, sparkles or rainbows. It is often a fight. Um, and that's, you know, that's something that I'm just, maybe I'm just getting comfortable with the fight. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think you you kind of have to, because you're totally right. That feedback loop, that giving and taking criticism is a skill. It's not something you can just, I don't know, a lot of people on day one who can take criticism extremely well and be like, oh, you're right. I will change this thing that I worked hard on and really liked and you said is kind of dog shit. Not that you should probably be working with anyone who calls yeah. your work dog shit. Yeah. But I, I'm, even when I went from smaller sites to bigger sites and getting harsher editors in a positive way, I just remember... Getting that and thinking I was good at it and be like, oh, maybe I'm not as good at this as I thought. And you do get used to in the case where you mentioned where you don't really have job titles in your business cards. So on a certain extent, everyone's on an even playing field. So it's Mm -hmm. not someone above you telling you, you need to change this. It's a conversation. And if everyone lands in the same spot, then you change something. And I think it's something that people don't really get. I know even now i will get certain criticism on a podcast i record or something like that and i i think that i'm going to be able to take that stuff but it it, it can it can get to you especially when the criticism you get back is something that uh you deep down know like okay maybe that wasn't as good as i thought it was or anything like that so i would assume in, in your case it's a lot of just kind of getting used to it, and it does take a while just to get like learn how to work with other people. Everyone yeah. has different habits and different ways they like things, and you can't just flip a switch and have that work
1: yeah, um I, I mean, and I know that I have um pretty like idiosyncratic tastes and ideas and stances and opinions about pretty much everything so uh <laughs> you know that, that uh, keeping in mind that i'm I'm on a different level not to be dismissive but i'm i'm operating on in a not not a not a higher level but a different level than than a lot of than a lot of my coworkers. i think yeah i think another part of it that matters is what is the intention behind the criticism like if you're receiving criticism where is that coming from is it constructive like is it made in service of like helping you um grow and improve or is it someone just saying something to make themselves feel better because you know they're they're making you feel worse. And when you're in creative fields, you know you run that risk of like creative competition and creative backstabbing like it's very real um, it's very present so like um, and there's even another kind of criticism which is like well intended but off the mark. So I can think of an example of this the last time I, demoed centris at pax East um, a gentleman from harmonics came up to my booth and played it for you know a half an hour and I love it whenever harmonix people will play my game and we get to talk about it I love playing their games and like you know there's it's a small world so music devs got to stick together but we had this <laughs> conversation it was so funny we had this conversation where after I, I didn't I, you know I didn't expect him to go into crit giving mode after he played, um, maybe not to the degree that he did, but he was very adamant about um, he was very adamant about how okay, if you haven't played Centris, it is a game where you build a song one note at a time mm. and every block every curved block that you see that's in your loop, like that's one note that you placed and they all add up to make your song. And he was extremely adamant that that was the wrong direction. He was, he was pretty, and you know, this was late into the project. This was like, um, less than six months before I finished, before I released. Um, and he was saying that it needed to be, um, you know, sequences of sounds so that when I place when I push a button, instead of getting bomb, I get ba ba da ba, ba da ba da ba. Oh yeah. You know? And, and I'm sitting there listening to him, And he's going on and on and on and on about this point. And I knew in my heart that that is just not what Centris is. Yeah. That, 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 like, that I had, you know, considered that idea much, much, much earlier in the project and been very intentional to not do that because if you're just pushing a button and then you're hearing someone else's guitar riff, it's not yours. And, the, the the important part of the game is like it, it's your music, like you are making music in a, in a way that no game lets you do. So, um, I was politely listening. I was sort of like nodding and smiling, and like I I knew that like I was never going imp- to implement his feedback. Um, and and he meant well, right? Like he was trying to um, help me be more financially successful or more successful, probably in a financial like commercial product way. And I think that if I had made that change to Centris and made it about sort of like constructing songs from, you know, these other building blocks, like these more bespoke building blocks of particular yeah. songs, then maybe it would have sold better. Um, um, and so while he's giving me like in the middle of this feedback, there's someone else playing at the booth. It's like, we're standing in the middle of the booth and someone like this, this teenage guy is, stands up from from playing the game and he turns to me he's like this is the coolest music game i've ever played this is amazing <laughs> oh, like so this awesome. is great thank you for making this i'm really looking forward to it and then and like and like, it, it interrupted um this gentleman's feedback session and then the, the the player sort of walked away and left the booth and then this guy immediately like picked up right where he left off like criticizing the design <laughs> and i was like did you not notice that like you know i didn't say this of course but i was like this guy just like played it and like really enjoyed it and he didn't have to say anything like that like i'm assuming that he you know said that he liked it because that's how he actually felt so this criticism that you're giving me about how no one's going to like it no one's going to understand it is a little bit misplaced because we have evidence right here that it's working for somebody yeah. um but 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 it didn't stop him from like just continuing on right that's perfect timing. <laughs> like, yeah, that's was, incredible. I almost laughed out loud. I almost bawled. <laughs>
0: um, well, then question. Let's say tomorrow you decide you want to make another game by yourself, just a solo Ooh. project that you're going to start spinning up. Now that you, let's say you got that advice from the harmonics guy, basically saying, if you do this thing that isn't really true to your game, which that's not how he was putting it, but it's what he really was saying, right? you might get more sales. And then you went the other direction and said, no, I want to make the game I'm making. For the next game you would make, Would you listen to more of that advice with the hope of, I need to make a bigger sales success, so I'm going to do these things that might make the game, let's say, more streamable or more shareable or more able to grab on to a larger audience? Do you want to make games that are more not inclusive, maybe more broad to a general audience, or is for you the passion there to make something true to yourself make something like we mentioned way back at the start of this podcast is more of a work of art that maybe fewer people appreciate, but you'll have a greater sense of value with it.
1: That's a great question. I think that there's room for both kinds of games in me. Mm. Um, At first, it was really important to establish some values and stick to them, Um, no matter how weird they are. At this point, because that vision of the game exists... I feel much more comfortable sort of relaxing a lot of the constraints around the authenticity of the instrument aspects of the game. If my goal with with the game was always to help people, like it was always to turn players of games into players of music. And um, maybe it's good enough to... Allow players of games to feel like they are players of music, even if they're not actually doing it. And this is one of the things that I begrudgingly acknowledge about games: is that um, they make us feel better at things than we actually are. Right? Like I call it <laughs> I call it Kratos syndrome, where <laughs> you are. You were Kratos is like jumping off of walls and swinging his chains and cutting twelve harpies and ripping their wings off and smashing some demons or whatever. And just like all you're doing is just pressing X over and over again. Like you're just pressing button, 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 but you, yeah, because but you, you feel incredible during it Yeah, you feel so fucking badass. Like, <laughs> I ripped that shit apart. Yeah, I like, can do that. I, I can jump over shit. this yeah.
0: mountain. I can take down a giant.
1: And and like I um I have a lot of mixed feelings about that. Those properties of games, right? And 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 part of, I guess, maybe part of that chip on my shoulder was an, incl- an inclination toward rebellion of of this like video game power fantasy. Um, but you know, if I think that I, it's re- I'm ready to re-examine, like what is the value of human experience of a variety of human experience and like, I just don't want to feel like I'm lying to people. Like if I say that this is a game that's going to turn you into a musician and you know, you can make your own music with this game. Um, I don't want to feel like I'm lying to them. Yeah. And the more like, it's a sliding scale, like the, like this, this, this aspect of like, if you have a horizontal line, and at the left side of the line is personal expression, and the right side of the line is like feeling cool. Yeah. Then, then like you know, then that you one fades into the other, like one fades out and the other as the other fades in. And so centrist was very much intentionally like not like you don't feel cool playing that game, <laughs> but maybe there is a, a different centrist that um that that does right. Like maybe, maybe, um, maybe there is, and and maybe that game like doesn't have a creative mode, you know, like maybe that's not what that is. Like, and that's part of, I I don't know, but that's something that I would explore as part of the process of that game. I'm not working on that game right now. So, um, but I'm, I think I'm open to it in my life. You know, I have lots of time to make games in my life.
0: So. Oh, totally. Yeah. And finding that kind of compromise and that middle ground between like what you said, feeling cool and learning something, yeah. you know, creating something in that way. Uh, yeah. Last thing earlier, you'd mentioned that, you know, since when you first started making Centris, you now have, uh, you're known, you have, you have this community of people who know you, you have respect of your peers, you're now working on this team. But yeah. how much confidence says something like, the Giant Bomb community given you to be on podcasts, to be on streams, to be more front facing about your passion for game development. Because like I said before we started recording, you're one of the first people that comes to mind anytime I'm like, hey, who do you guys want me to talk to in this podcast? Everyone's always like, you not need to get Samantha Common on your podcast at some point. Um, (laughs) A lot of my listeners are Giant Bomb fans, so there's definitely a connection there. So has it been cool having that? support system in a certain sense around you on Twitter on Reddit um and just within the Giant Bomb forums.
1: Yeah, um that's really really sweet of your of your listeners. Um I I feel um incredibly happy to like be a part of the Giant Bomb, you know, friends of the site family and yeah. like I love the community there. Um there's i've talked before on podcasts about about my sort of entrance into that community and um and i and how without going too far into details how um you know a lot of toxicity from yeah. that community sort of exited as a result of the the, the staff and the moderators embracing me as uh, a person <laughs> you know, yeah. just like with with like a, a a right to be there, and so um, the the people like I've 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 for for various reasons I've only ever felt like totally loved and embraced by the giant bomb community, and um, and it makes me feel good to know that they would be so steadfast in like being open to being entertained by a person like me. Right. Um, it it is a question of privilege and a question of access and a question of diversity. Every time I show up on one of their streams and, you know, for some reason, um, they like it when I do. So now like I can just roll up and like host UPF because I'm (laughs) in town. Right. Like that (laughs) happened. And that, that's kind of, you know, that's been one of the best rewards from this whole adventure. I mean, I feel like I also feel okay about it because I have, you know, I've watched, you know, I've watched, I've read the site and and watched the videos for years. And, um, so in a lot of ways, like meeting everyone, meeting everyone and then later gradually becoming friends has been like a really, really special experience for me. And, um, Um, and of course I appreciate the giant bomb bump on social media. (laughs) It doesn't hurt. hurt. Um, and, um, but, but really like I tweeted the other day, the real video game was the friends we made along the way. (laughs) Uh, And, and I genuinely, like, it's silly, but, but like, there's some truth in that, right? Like, there's a lot of truth in that. Like I, um, you know, I've, I, uh, we play games because they they fit a purpose in our lives. Like they, they help us in some way. They help us relax. They help us unwind. They help us feel like we have control when we don't so much in our lives. Um, and, you know, friendship and community and camaraderie um, are like the metagame. They're the game of life. And, and so I feel like, at least in some in some ways, at least enough, I, I'm winning that game enough that, that it's made me a better person.
0: Every community has a bad side to it, but the Giant Bomb one just from, I've had just about every staff member on this podcast and the response to that has been, it's like heartwarming because I'm like you where I read that site for years and years and watched all those videos and listened to those podcasts each and every week to a point where these people felt like your friends even though at that point I'd never talked to any of them yeah so yeah to be able to see the response from the community is incredible and anyway you know, it's i've been, it, it's cool also because the, the idea of friends of giant bomb introduces me to people like you and like eric oh, pope and all these different yeah. people who i'm like these people are awesome and i would have never been able to like rare unlikely that i'll actually get to know them if it wasn't for the giant bomb bump of getting them out to a bunch of people uh this is the last thing i lied before where can people find you on twitter and um what I guess what part of Astroneer are you working on that you can talk about? Like what's the next thing that you're releasing?
1: Um, You can find me on Twitter at Samantha zero. Um, And I am still, I'm working on still more interactions uh, for, for Astroneer. Um, I'm also planning um, some future content, which I'm not ready to, uh, to talk about (laughs) in detail. Um, yeah, there there's a lot of, there's a lot of work to do for that game. So I think that the, you know I'm really I'm just happy to be part of a team that is working on a game like this, and everyone's putting so much into it that like the, the game it, it's not a game I could make by myself. Yeah. Um, it's not a game I would make by myself. So I actually don't. I I honestly believe that the things that I'm doing for the game. I believe that it's making it better, but I don't think that it's the best stuff in the game. Um, I think that the best stuff is coming. The best stuff for Astroneer is coming from other people, um, and right now I'm okay with that. And I'm learning, and I'm um, laying in wait, quiet, ready to strike. <laughs> I'm waiting under. I'm hiding under the ring. <laughs> I've been there since like four PM when they open the doors. And come 10 30 when you know the title match is happening. I'm gonna jump out from under that <laughs> ring skirt and like pull someone out and hit him with a chair. So that's I can't wait
0: to see a full video of this. It's gonna be incredible. More wrestling. We <laughs> see we started with wrestling and we end with wrestling. It's a fucking it's a full circle. Um Samantha thanks so much for doing this. Uh it's I'm again really happy that. Giant Bomb has introduced me to people like you and other really awesome creative people who are doing rad shit that I want to know about. I can't wait to see what else you do with Astroneer, then hopefully down the line, I would love to see you tackle another solo project, because on this podcast before, I've talked about this idea of Really being able to see that creator's touch in their games, to see a game and understand it came from this person. I think Centrist is one of the best examples of that. So I would love to oh, see you do that, that again is in the future. That's an incredible compliment. Thank you so much. <laughs> no Josiah, problem. At you're all. too
1: kind. And thank you for having me. This is a really fun conversation, Um, and thanks for waiting for me to get through all my technical (laughs) issues and details to be able to do this.
0: No problem at all. I I really appreciate the time. There's always technical stuff with podcasts. So the fact it's like a video game when any of these actually gets. created and made and out the door it's it's a miracle it's really
1: that's a hard. game you should make you should make the <laughs> the, the, the video game about making a podcast oh my god
0: i'm gonna make podcast simulator and that's there's the idea right
1: podcast there. simulator 2018 i
0: need to remove this from the podcast coming simulator. soon this
1: coming to steam <laughs> look for it on kickstarter right, it'll be on the new again. releases for five seconds before it gets there. pushed to the bottom
0: <laughs> thanks everyone for listening Hi. i hope you tune back in for the next episode of the 1099